Welcome to the Spencer Scott Holmes Podcast. I'm your host, and today we got super special guest here, Brandon Sanderson, comic book creator. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I know this podcast has been like literally months in the making almost or something like that because I'm trying to think of which was like the first place we met, but we met in those handful of uh, comic cons in the Central Valley you know yeah i'm pretty sure it was stockton yeah i think i think i think you're right i think stockton was the very first yeah that's right i know because i remember we were right across each other booth wise there and so on like that but um you know over the last six plus months or something like that you know we've you know crossed paths a handful of times and so on like that and we're like we got a podcast we got a podcast and you know just that's always kind of how it is sometimes it's just the times never connect but we're getting one in right now even if it's going to be a little bit of a short one hey that, we dodged each other like kids playing tag <laughs> yeah exactly just somehow some way just n- never you know just could not combine forces could not do the fusion dance of any sort but um but now you know what now we're finally doing it and here we go let's go Exactly. And, um, well, I know you've been doing, a, you know, almost like practically a Comic-Con every single weekend. But the one I kind of wanted to hear even more about was the one that you did, oh, it seemed like about maybe three weeks ago or something like that. But you were in Las Vegas, breaking out of the California Territory Zone. Yes, my first out-of-state show. <laughs> so how did that one all go? That, that one just sounds that, like something different, at least. Dude, that was a crazy show. So it was the Level Up comic anime and video game show uh and there weren't a lot of comic book guys there there was myself and a couple other indie creators uh one was right across from me and and they had about eight different titles that they were selling and then there was uh down down the artist alley and one row over there was one more and then there was one or two guys selling like back issues and stuff and that was it everything else was just funko pop anime and gaming yeah, and I know that that's sort of been kind of the bane to many, uh, you know, especially indie comic book creators, but just comic book creators in general, is that recently the cons have just gotten to that point where they've, they've jammed too many things into one Comic-Con, and I think that's kind of a, in a sense, it's very much diluted the comic book section of it all. I mean, it's not it saying has. that, yeah, it's not saying that people can't be into all that kind of stuff, but I kind of hate to say it, I think the average person's mostly only into about two or three things, so... Right. You know, well, and all that other stuff is expensive. I mean, if you're coming to to get some some gaming stuff or or any of that or some Funkos, I mean, those things those things run hundreds of dollars. Some of them. Yeah. So, so many, you know, and I always I always feel like the average person probably has give or take two hundred dollars in their pocket. You know, yeah. and, and that can go by real quick. And they still need money for food. They still need money for a couple other things. Maybe even getting themselves home and so on like that. So that leaves them with maybe. It, you know, bare minimum of a little hundred plus for, of expendable cash. Yeah. Now, the good news for wasn't a lot to pick from. They were spending money at, at, at our booth, which was, which I thought was great. So, you know, having the table there and maybe being, you know, just one of the few fruit on the tree actually got, uh, I think, probably helped with sales maybe as much as it hurt. And I was able to convert a couple of uh, manga fans over to, 
to my more Western comics. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess there is always something to be said. Like, if you are one of the few indie comic book guys there, uh, no matter what, there's always those people that are coming, looking at the Comic-Cons and looking for something that you can't get, you know, yeah. at your regular store. Because, I mean, that was when, when I went to Comic-Cons, that was my first thing that I want. I'm like, I want, uh, like, books that I can't find just normally anywhere. I can't even maybe find them online, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I was always looking for either that or if it was something that I get at a comic shop, like a back issue, that it needed to be just marked way down mm-hmm. to where, you know, it, it's like a hundred and fifty dollar book that I'm finding for seventy five bucks. Then those are the two things I look for at cons. Yeah, the the actual good deals, not not like the vice versa where it's like, hey, you mark this up like twice as high as like you know one on eBay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like one of the one of the one of the guys that had the uh, the back issue booths. He had a, a first appearance of Carnage, Amazing Spider-Man 365, I want to think it is, mm-hmm. 362. But first Carnage, I mean, normally that book is is crazy, crazy value. He had it for 90 bucks. So mm-hmm. that I thought that was a great deal. But I, unfortunately, by the time I finally got over back over to his booth to pick it up, it, it had pro- sold probably the first hour the show was open, I'm sure. I just saw it when everyone was setting up. Yeah. And it's sometimes if you don't, don't grab those deals right then and there, that's it. Yeah. My friend Buddy actually has those first handful of runs of the Carnage ones that I think he got, you know, right when they came out back in the day, not thinking anything of it, you know. You were just buying oh, a new no. Spider-Man book. Yeah, I, I had those too, and they were just trashed. Because, I, I mean, I didn't think those books would be worth <laughs> what they are now. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird because it's like, it, it, that's like the thing with all the collectible markets is like, there's a certain amount of things that are worth a ton of money, but for the most part, the majority of things aren't really worth anything. It's like you can have something that's like be like 80 years old, and you're like, this is going to be worth something. And then it's like, $5? You kidding me? This this thing's almost like pushing like 100 years, and it's not worth something? <laughs> I know. And yet some book that came out in like 1998 <laughs> is going, I mean, like, what, First Parents of Deadpool, I think it was 1993, uh-huh. and that book is $2,800, $3,000. Yeah, it's it's so it's so bizarre how certain ones can kind of go in price and just the change and all that kind of stuff and whatnot. But I rem- I remember I bought three copies of the first Deadpool when it was new, mm-hmm. and because I I bought it original off the newsstand, and then I think maybe a month later it was already about ten bucks, so I bought a couple more, and I sold them on eBay a number of years back because they were worth like three or four hundred bucks. I'm like, it'll never be worth more than this. <laughs> Get to cash out. Yep, I, you know, I've done that so many times. I did because I used to do a lot of like buying and selling of video games to kind of go along with like collecting and so on. And yeah. you know, yeah, you would see that point where you're like, oh my gosh, it's never going to be worth more than that. And then you know, ten more years later, you're like, oh man, if I would have held on to that, I could have sold it for five times more than what I got. You know, it was only fairly recently that I even realized that video games like go crazy in value. Yeah, well, you know, in video games, it's like it's been about like a twenty-year period that they've kind of went up. I mean, and they've definitely stair-stepped up more and more as time has kind of gone on. It's ironic that like PC games, on the other hand, just don't seem to have a whole lot of value unless it's a very specific one. It's it's just that weird thing that there's like this one was worth a lot, but this one over here that's realistically the exact same thing, not worth the same. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and in fact, a PC game was how I learned that. I went to a, a Goodwill store a number of years ago. And my youngest son loves Warhammer. He he, mm-hmm. he doesn't play the mini game, but he, he reads the books and he, he likes the video games. Yeah. And he really liked the the real time strategy game. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a whole series and it had or it was it was one game and it just had a bunch of expansions. Mm-hmm. And he he would buy all the expansions and there was one that I guess was really hard to find or he never even knew existed. We're at a Goodwill store. We just saw it in there and, and I picked it up 
and you know he loaded it and he he played it for a couple of months. And I was telling a buddy of mine who also likes the game that that we had found it, and he pulled it up for me on eBay, and it was going for like two hundred and fifty dollars on eBay, and I paid ninety nine cents for it at a Goodwill. Well, and that's one of the best parts about Goodwill. Goodwill always seems to just literally give away anything they have there for like next to nothing. Oh yeah, no, I, I have I have cashed out Goodwill and like antique stores. Mm-hmm. I found I found great things. I mean, the thing is, is as time has kind of gone on, I feel like people have become a lot more savvy to it. Like it felt like once again about twenty years ago when I was kind of collecting all kinds of games from like flea markets and so on like that. That was that time period where people just kind of said, "Ah, eh, whatever. Here's an old video game thing. We'll we'll, we'll just give it to you for five or ten dollars, and you would just pick up deals galore left and right." And then it yeah. got. I think it got to the point once people sort of had cell phones in their hands and they could check eBay on the fly and people just got kind of accustomed yeah. to it, that, that sort of changed the whole game of getting, like, you know, good deals continuously. Oh, seriously. I saw that happen in real time. I went to a – there's an antique store uh, near my house. and I discovered it when uh, my wife was looking for something for the house. I don't remember what, but she wanted something specific. And it, she wanted it to be kind of old-timey and authentic-looking, so – we were going around to, to antique stores, and I, we went into one. It had a little comic corner, like with a bunch of boxes. Mm-hmm. And I was flipping through them, and everything was a dollar, whatever you found. And I found a first reverse flash. Oh, wow. And so I picked that up. It wasn't in the best shape, but I mean, still, first reverse flash. So I picked it up. It was just a buck, and I thought, well, you know, she didn't give me a lot of time to look. They had like eight boxes. And so I went back to the same shop probably about, you know, eight months or a year later. And now all of a sudden they're varied in prices and some of them are behind the counter. So they, they figured it out so at some point. Yeah, probably what happened is she had, you know, some friend or relative come in and say, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? You can't just put a dollar for all these ones or whatever. Like, you got to yeah. you gotta check these ones. You've got some real, like, you know, cash-making things here and so on. Yeah, I, I hate to think it was some, like, narc customer came in <laughs> and is like, hey, man, did you know these are worth things? Yeah, yeah, you, you know there's probably somebody like that. You're like, no, 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 stop, stop. That's that's our that's our special place for deals. <laughs> you know, that, that's also the one, too, there's someone's like, they'd be like, I'd be like, hey, Give you fifty dollars for all three of these big boxes right here, and they'd be like, "Oh well, sure, take them, go for it." Here, yeah, here's, exactly. here's some more I had behind the counter, and I just didn't have any room to place yet. And they would just hand you them all right off the bat, and so on, like that, and be like, "Oh, cool, awesome." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I used to look for stuff like that all the time, but I mean, that's if you find something like that, usually you're like on a road trip and you're stopping in some small town, mm-hmm. and you you just pop in somewhere and and you just shot in the dark you found something that that's when you find that stuff anymore yeah exactly it's it's just not it's just not as common anymore not saying that once in a blue moon i might not find something but um yeah you know it just felt like there was there was a time where you could almost guarantee go to just about any you know thrift store flea market what have you and you would always just find something that you could kind of take home and then yeah. it was for a nice, reasonable price. You know, now sometimes you go to like, it's not usually like certain stores and it's like they'll have stuff. I mean, like, dude, it's like, hate to say it, but it's like you got that for twice the price it is on eBay and it's not even in good condition. At least the guy on eBay will give it to me in good condition. And worst case, if for some reason something was messed up, I'm still at least covered by eBay. What are you going to provide for me? <laughs> yeah, right. You no, know, and it's, it's just, I remember it's been fairly recent that everybody started picking up that 90s comics are starting to get valuable, especially like 90s Marvel is, is getting crazy. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the MCU is drawn from a lot of those stories. Yeah. But uh, I, I was trying, I tried my best to get ahead of that that curve and and find some of the, some of the more hole-in-the-wall comic shops and, and stock up on, on some titles and some books that I knew were going crazy. Um, like I got the, uh, the young Avengers, as soon as I started seeing them pop up at the MCU on Disney plus, 
I knew that book would get crazy and it did. And, um, the, the strange Academy, number one, that book is insanely valuable now. And there's not even like a specific character that appears in that. It's just so many first appearance care or characters have their first appearance in that book that they just figure it's going to be worth something. One of these characters is going to get it like a, a movie or a Disney show. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, that just makes me start thinking. I'm like, wait a second. Moon Knight just came out. I want to say I have like the first like 13 issue run of Moon Knight, if not maybe even more oh, of those. Yeah. And it's one of those ones that like literally I got like in a trade like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's just those like those and the uh, the Steve, the Stephen Platt run towards the end of, of his kind of like 80s and 90s series. Mm-hmm. Those books are all really valuable, too. Yeah, I, I need to take a look. At that. I totally spaced out even had those until cause that's the only downfall. It gets to that one point where you, you almost forget which books you have anymore because you just got boxes upon boxes. And my favorite part is when you, you go into your house and you find a random box that you totally forgot about. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, well, what's this one here? Oh, look at all these books in here. I find those because I, I have a, a shelf out in my garage that keeps them up off the ground in, in a fairly safe, temperature-controlled-ish area. Mm-hmm. And I'll go through those boxes and forget. It's like, I didn't even remember I collected this series. Yeah, it's like you, you almost get brand new things. You're like, man, I could read this now. I didn't even know I had this. Oh, I know. I uh, I play. A, I have. I collect these little uh, miniature things called Hero Clicks. It's like a superhero tabletop game. Uh huh. And they they are figures. They come with little character cards, and on the cards they have like significant comic book appearances. And I remember when when the the new Thor movie got announced, they said, "Oh, this will be the first appearance of Jane Foster as Thor." Mm-hmm. And everybody went and hunted down that Jason Aaron comic. Yeah. That where she first appeared a few years ago, and I had that one already because I, I bought it when it was new. But I remembered from the game on the back of the card, it said her first appearance was something else because they had a figure of her. And I looked and it's actually in a what if comic from like the 70s. Yeah, that, that, did what if Jane Foster became Thor? And that's where the first Jane Foster Thor is. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, I, I knew that that was I felt like that was farther back. If it, or, if, you know, unless it was just like mm-hmm. unless it's, there's not like a Lady Thor kind of thing. That's like a different version, not Jane Foster, but somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, no, there, well, there's the in Earth X in the future. That, that's right. Okay, as I say, because I, I I want to say that there was also that one too. But um, but yeah, it's weird yeah, how but, those things are. Just like those little, those kind of they're almost become kind of. It sounds weird, but like when they kind of come out, they're almost like throwaway comics. Nobody thinks much of it. Like, ah, eh, here's this little extra series, whatever. Boop, toss to the side, goes in the dollar bin. Next thing yep. you know, fifteen years later, <laughs> everybody well, wants it. Be, what ifs can be crazy because they they. It's almost like what if they they had two versions of what if you had the what if. This is why a story went a certain way, kind of like what if Jean Grey, you know, never became Phoenix or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then they'll do kind of like what if and then they what if Spider-Man had a daughter? And that's the first Mayday Parker yeah. is actually in a what if book. And th- so they'll, they'll do these stories every now and then where it'll be what if Captain America and Black Widow had a daughter and they'll create a character for it. And if that, if that character is well responded, then they'll they'll put her they'll bring her back somehow. Yeah. And so, you know, Thor, it, it took him about 40 years to come back to the idea, but when, and I, the Jane Foster. Yeah. And I always like those kind of what if stories and like, you know, kind of the alternate like universes kind of things and like DC and whatnot. I always just think yeah. it's kind of fun to have these just different takes. We can kind of go of certain characters and just like say, hey, let, let's see what happens. 
Well, and now you have DC with the Omniverse. So like everything that can happen di- does happen in their world and, and continuity is, is just a madhouse. So yeah. And I mean, you, like you I, never know what's going to come back. Yeah. And, I, and that, that sounds like chaos, but I, I'm always kind of a big fan of like keeping everything almost like, yes, everything happens good, bad and ugly. Like, I think it should all be represented. It's one yeah. of those ones. It's like, you know, cause like movies for, there was that period for a while where movies were doing that thing where they sort of said like, Hey, people like the first one. So let's cut the sequels out. And now the new one, almost going to just yeah. gonna tie into the first and that always bothered me is like i felt like that was just like you know a kick to the fans where it's just like no 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 for the people who actually like the entire series like you know we're, we're just going to kind of forget about you and your middle run and i kind of feel like if you're if you're a writer and you're gonna if you're gonna take on a movie franchise you're gonna take on a long-running comic then and if you don't have the skill to handle your story within the continuity then i don't know that you got the chops to to come in and, and do what you're doing yeah so like if you're t- if you're gonna take on X Men, and it's like yeah, but you know what they got so much lore and so much continuity, and I want to have to deal with that. So we're just gonna go ahead and reboot the whole series. No, I, you you gotta you gotta keep the lore and everything in there. I mean you don't have to you don't have to re- re- go back to it. Yeah. But if if there's a character that's dead, you at least have to know that and acknowledge either you're resurrecting them somehow or they're not in your story. Yeah, exactly. That's how I just kind of feel. It's one of those ones like it should just be represented and not forgotten in a sense. You know what I mean? Because just because certain let's just say just because somebody might not like a certain issue, that's not saying that somebody else might not be their favorite one. You know, it's the same thing with movies. You know, somebody like, oh, well, you know, number two or number three wasn't nearly received as well. It's like, yeah, but that could also be somebody else's favorite one. So who are you to say like why that doesn't exist or why we should kind of just like brush it under the rug or anything like that? We had a lot of those movies. I mean, like the the Halloween movies are great examples. Much as yeah. I like the new ones. Yeah, I mean, I still like um, the new ones, but I, yeah, they they do that thing where they skip all the in betweens. Yeah, I think Halloween three was the first one I ever saw, so it just kind of has a soft spot. I mm-hmm. have a soft spot for that one just because that was my introduction to the franchise. I went back and saw them again in order, but we I, I remember it was a friend's house. I think we were having a sleepover and. We'd rented a bunch of R-rated movies when we were kids and thought it was great. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we had, like, Friday the 13th, I think, 7, Halloween 3. <laughs> nothing that these are. We didn't know what was going on. But you don't really need to know a lot of lore to understand Jason Voorhees. No, you could jump into any of those. And I, that's mm-hmm. when I was a kid, that was the same thing me and my buddy would do. We'd just go rent the VHSs of just random horror movies, you know, every Friday night or something like that. Yep. And just go through them and just watch, you know, two or three different ones every single weekend. And, uh... That was just kind of like the good old learning experience of the horror genre. Yeah. We, tr- my friend and I, we lived, we, uh, I had a friend that lived across the street from me and not within walking distance from our house was a, just a, a mom, pa, uh, video store. And we made it a goal. We tried to rent every horror title they had, uh, in order starting in the A's. And I, I think we ended up, making, but yeah, we tried to see every horror movie in a, in a, video store once we we got to l and that's when we had to stop <laughs> yeah it gets to a certain point you can only see so much but um no that's always kind of fun to do and just get that experience and so on like that but um since we're kind of going on the speed run of a podcast let's jump in a little bit of uh all about your book right here all right because i know that the last issue i got malevolent rising was issue six but i almost want to say yeah. you're one or two more issues ahead by this point or i know you at least have that graphic novel yeah the graphic novel is done that collects all six and I am literally drawing the last page of, because they're not going to be an issue seven. We're just starting a new chapter. So it's uh-huh. going to be a number one. And it's uh, Malevolent Rising Matriarch. And this one, is, it's not really a volume two as much as it's a one and a half. I have to I have to do a little world building to get to two. Okay. So this one brings back one of the main characters. 
and the others the others are taking a story off and uh we're gonna go into her past quite a bit and some something that something that comes from her past is is come to the forefront and is going to plant the seeds for what the enemy is going forward in the next chapter no, well, see, that would be kind of cool just to have that kind of almost like the breather chapter of kind of yeah. doing doing all your building, kind of coming back in action, and then uh, leading up with all these extra details and then going hardcore into, you know, technically, I guess you would say, the second volume section. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the te- the actual sequel. Because this one, this one, I, I, it's just kind of a bridge. I don't even want to call it a volume two. And in fact, I think issue ends with a teaser for the next volume, and it's, uh, adversary is is, vol- is the next one. And then are you just going to kind of go with single issues in this one, or is this going to be like one thick issue and then start the next run? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be as long. This one's only going to be four books. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's still, still graphic novels worth and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, we'll collect it in the end. And Because I usually do, um, I st- when I first started the book, I did an Indiegogo to crowdfund it. Mm-hmm. And it worked out really well. And then I just kept with it because it let me know how many people, how many to print, how many people wanted. So yeah. I just kind of did it as, for like pre-orders. So I put them out there and I would get as many orders as I would get. And then within a couple, and I would, wouldn't even start until the book was done. And then within a, about six weeks of that, I'd fulfill all the orders and then, you know, be halfway done, halfway on the road to the next one. So, and I probably won't even put this one online until it's the graphic novel. Yeah, well, that's how I always sort of felt, too, like, when it comes to comic books. Because I've never done an Indiegogo yet, but I've done a handful of Kickstarters and so on like yeah. that. And to me, I always, I, I used to always like to say I treat them like a pre-order. That's kind of how it is, because yeah, it seems kind of weird to, like, because, I mean, like, sometimes you'll see certain comic books where, like, they'll ask for all the money up front, and they haven't even drawn a single page yet or something like that. And it's kind of like... That seems like yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't like the idea of that because then it's like, gosh, it's like it's like you're buying a book that you might not get for like a year or so, and yeah, and I get it because a lot of the times it's somebody who's written a book but hasn't secured an artist, they don't have money to pay an artist yet. Um, so I, I, I get that, but you know, usually if I'm going through, because I'll, I'll back Kickstarter and Indiegogo if I see something that looks really interesting, mm-hmm. and if I'm going through, but usually I need to see some of the artwork to see that the book actually is getting made and. You know, see if it's going to ultimately be something that I want because a lot of times they'll just post a, a promo issue or a promo image rather, yeah. And then none of the none of the guts of the book, and you don't really know what you're getting. And then it shows up, and you know, it's it's maybe not what you were expecting, or it's a black and white, or it's really short, maybe, and you pay twenty dollars for a twenty-two page comic. Yeah, well, yeah, because some people just charge an outrageous price for like that. Like I, my, my kind of. Oh, yeah. My thing, thing is, is like I don't. The price of a comic book still should never be more than like a Marvel or a DC one. If you're charging more than right. one of their issues, granted, I know that they can get their prints so much cheaper because you know they're printing out you know hundred thousand issues at a time. Oh but, yeah, I'm sure they're probably under a dollar a comic. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like at the end of the day, it's still got to be about in that similar kind of yeah you know realm because you know it's like once i start seeing books that are like ten plus dollars, you know, and they're just like a regular twenty page one, it's just kind of like. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, it's no. asking a lot. I mean, like, I get it. if it's a thick one, that totally makes sense. You know what I mean? If you get, like, yeah, the, like a double a, issue or anything like that, well, I mean, it's a double issue. So 10 bucks is that, that perfect. Yeah, I always explain that because number six was 50 pages just about. So I always, when I go through the list of the price, I'm like, oh, these are all five except this one's 10, but it's 50 pages. Yeah, it's, it's a double it's issue. It's quick. a big book, you know what I mean? And that, that yeah. totally makes sense to me and so on. But, um... But, yeah, I always just feel like it's just got to be reasonable. I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, it'd be nice to kind of have it there. But, you know, yeah. yeah you, and I had to, I wrestled with that $10 price tag because 
I, I got through with issue five and then I'm like, holy crap, I got so much story left to tell. <laughs> and so I thought about breaking five, six up into two books and make it seven. But ever since issue one, I've been doing it. I've been saying it's a six issue series. So I didn't want to like advertise for number five. Just, like, just kidding. There's going to be seven. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like one of those ones. I, a lot of times, I always tell people if they if they get an issue that ends up being a bunch of pages, you should just put like on there, like so it looks like that giant size X Men issue where like you really yeah. advertise like fifty six pages of full detail and just give it like that almost old fashioned high octane action. <laughs> yeah, like one of those <laughs> ones. Like just go for it and just make it like that and so on like that. But um. But yeah, no, I mean, your books, have, like, right off the bat, you know, you opened any of them up, and that was the first thing I thought when I saw yours, I guess, oh, six-plus months ago, or whenever we first met. I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, all the artwork just literally pops off the page, just totally killer stuff, awesome action, oh, fun-looking characters, and everything like that. I mean, it was one of those ones, like, I felt like, yeah, give me all you have. It was one of those easy ones, like, I don't even have to look anymore, you know? It's not like one of yeah. those ones where sometimes you sit there, and you're kind of flipping through, and you're like... It's interesting, but do I really want it? This was like, oh, dude, this is this is awesome. I'm sold. I'll take it. I appreciate it. But, yeah, I just, you know, I learned, I, I cut my teeth on 90s. I, I Collecting comedy in the 90s, that's how I learned to draw, was just drawing, copying Todd McFarlane or Jim Lee or any of those guys. I don't think I took a professional art class till I went back to college later in life uh-huh. um, and started learning more fine details. But so... I, I've really just that that's where I that visual style like visual a visual of a comic will get me to buy it before a story will nine times out of ten yeah I mean I, no matter how much I like the writer I'll, I'll flip through and if the art is janky then I, I'm probably going to pass it by unless it's a writer I really love yeah I, I kind of know there or unless like like if the art is that kind where it's like there's like the kind of janky art, but it actually looks mm-hmm. completely unique, I sometimes kind of like yeah. that. Like, like uh, the best way I can kind of say, say I'm drawing the blank on the guy's name, but the guy who makes the Girl Scout comics and they're spelled oh, girl yeah, as yeah, in G R R L Scouts mm-hmm. because he got I think sued by the Girl Scouts at one point. Yeah, or, or a know, cease and desist kind of letter came in, probably because it was, you know it's you know hard like R kind of book and so on, and everybody's doing drugs and stuff in there. But like that art's so weird and so bizarre, yeah. and it, everything you know it, it would like give like an art school teacher like a heart attack if they saw that book because everything is off. But it's almost like yes. it's so off in a cool way. You know, a good mainstream example of that was there was a comic that came out by DC uh, last year, and I reviewed it for my channel, mm-hmm. and it's called I Am Not Starfire. And the book itself is horrendous. Like, it's terribly written. <laughs> but the artwork, while not at all traditional comic art, is just so interesting. The artist, the way they, they put their panels together, and, like, the like every character has not only a color scheme to themselves, but when they appear in a panel and they're supposed to be the ones talking, the panel kind of takes on their colors. Oh, that's kind of cool. It's just... It was really, you know, flipping through it. I hated the book. Yeah. I was gonna rip it. I was gonna rip it apart online, but I, I flipped through it again. I'm like, but the, I, I found myself actually kind of a, drawn to the artwork a bit, and mm-hmm. it's not something I normally would have liked because it's this weird kind of illustrator, you know, digital Tumblr kind of artwork. But I don't know, this this artist had an eye for design, and it, it carried over. And I almost feel like after looking at it again, it's like this artist was too good for this book. 
<laughs> yeah, well, because I remember, I want to say my buddy Dunnigan from the Old Man Orange podcast, he's, he, I remember he got that book and he said the same thing too. He's like, dude, it has like the stupidest story in it or whatever. That's like, awful. Yeah, it's like that. But like, it's kind of weird how sometimes there'll be some books be like, yeah, but the art actually is kind of cool. I mean, lot, that a lot of times happens to me is like, I'll buy a certain book just because it's got something cool and unique. And a lot of times what I always kind of call is I, I like when Marvel and DC does that where they get almost like a, an individual type artist. Because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I always feel it's, it's not the main books, but sometimes like uh, you would say like the B books of Marvel and DC, like kind of like here's the, you know, it's not the main X-Men, it's not the main Batman, but here's like the third, you know, issue we, we have yeah. this month. They'll have that kind of artwork where it's like, I call it kind of a generic comic book artwork. There's nothing mm-hmm. technically bad about it, but it just looks like someone just like, like almost like a robot kind of put together. They went to school yeah. and it's missing all like creativity. But then yeah. there'll be, like, that D book where they sort of allow, like, just, like, a real, like, creative artist who probably, once again, would fail any art class. But you see their work and you're like, oh, man, this is awesome. Like, one, for example, that I liked a lot was that Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. Like, that artwork I mm. thought was so cool. And that, like, drew me into it. And then, plus, it had a cool storyline as well. You Great know. story. You know, so, you know, you, you get the double whammy there. But, like, I like when they have that kind of artwork where it's just, like, here's this experimental artwork. And that that stuff to me is always, like, you know, really inspiring and so on. Well, and a lot of the time, too, when you get into, like, a a, a D, like a Web of Spider-Man level book or, or even a fill-in artist on a book or backup artist, a lot of the time these are guys who are just getting an opportunity. They're just getting a break. So they're putting everything on those pages that they got. I mean, mm-hmm. they're throwing every trick they know into putting this project together in hopes of getting, you know, more work or, or a better assignment. So every now and then you'll find somebody, you will flip him through and whether the art's kind of your style or not, you can just tell that this guy just threw all of himself into this. Yeah. And, and he just put out the, what he, his, the best art, his hand is capable of producing just put was put on this page. And you could tell they were just meticulous about it and just gave it, everything that they had to try to impress whoever it was they wanted to impress to be able to just to just to get work for another month yeah exactly you know they'll they'll just put out this really neat stuff and then you, know, you can tell us they're, they're not like the i guess you would say like the company men artist who just like hey you know what it's almost like working like a union like this is how you draw spider-man you don't go out of the way of this we yeah. all keep it in line and so on like that <laughs> Well, yeah, and you could tell back in the in the seventies and eighties. I mean, Marvel and DC, they both had house styles. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell. I, I get a lot of these books. I can't tell the artists apart half the time. No, well, that's like when you look at like those like uh, original Frank Miller Daredevil ones, and it's like yeah. if you were used to seeing Frank Miller from like the you know like the. I mean, as you say, like Dark Knight um, Returns mm-hmm. on up, you would just go like, wait a second. That artwork doesn't even look anywhere near the same. It actually, almost in a weird way, it makes it look like... Because, you know, Frank Miller's always had that thing where he can draw one panel that's really awesome, and then he can have one panel yeah. that looks very sloppy. And it, I, I like yeah. that look. I, I like how it does that. But, like, the very first time you look at those books, you're like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, like he drew well, this really I, I, great I, Batman, and then this other one just looks like almost like he let, like, you know, his son come in to draw the next one. Like, it look, it, it's so odd. I know. But that's almost what makes it more magical, I think, in the long run. Is I, yeah. I, li- the, 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 I like that kind of Frank Miller work. But then you go back to some of that early Daredevil, and you're like, wow. It's like he, he draws everything almost like, you know, really like, you know, in perfect proportions and so on like that. But it's missing that extra charm that I think comes later on with, like, you know, Sin City and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The only place I really feel in Frank Miller's run where you see the seeds of what Frank Miller is is when he's drawing Electra. Because she's got that Sin City look to her specifically, like in the eyes and the hair and the, the outfit. 
Mm-hmm. And going forward, you could tell that was and if everybody because I'm I'm pretty sure he created or co-created Electra. I think and something like so, that. Yeah, and so you can tell like this is his character. This is the one he put his signature on. Everybody else, it felt like he was just kind of renting renting time with. Yeah, and and so when you know when it went to Sin City, it's you could see the transition already started there. But like you said, I mean, I his Daredevil looked a lot like if like John Romita Senior was drawing Daredevil. It was all feathery, shadowing, and everything yeah. else in the beginning, and he got a little bit more like. Uh, kind of dynamic with his square jawlines everything towards the end but it's still not what you i I would if you showed me uh, daredevil and a sin city i wouldn't have put those together as the same artist yeah exactly and it's like you know those daredevil books are really amazing story-wise everything about them fantastic but it's just yeah it's it's weird how like yeah he almost like oh it's like so he could totally draw like this but he chooses to draw like a lot more just like very creatively and almost like kind of cartoony and but that becomes his own style and, you know, things like that. And that, that, that's almost it is like cool, unique artwork is always sometimes will sell me uh, something that's, you know, yeah. more than something that's more like in that, like, oh, it's perfectly proportioned. And, you know, everybody used every ruler and, you know, tool and like the old tool chest and what have you just to make it as perfect as possible. I'm like, because it's like sometimes if it gets if it gets too perfect, then it almost like loses that like freehand kind of design. Yeah. You know, one artist who, who demonstrate that is, is Mark Bagley. He, I, I kind of define him as, as the Spider-Man artist now because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm almost certain he's drawn Spider-Man more than anybody else on Earth. <laughs> and um, but he is that very technical, perfect comic book artist. I mean, he, you can put him on any title. It's going to look professional and clean and polished. And, you know, you'll still be able to recognize his style because he's got kind of a way he draws faces and, and does shadowing and stuff. Um but he kind of, when he went to Ultimate Spider-Man and got to have a little bit more freedom of the character, you saw a little bit of change in his style, and he brought that over when he came back to the character. But he's kind of your your polished, we need a book done, put Mark Bagley on it. And you can always tell, because every time they reboot Spider-Man lately, they they have these big storylines, like they just wrapped up Spider-Man Beyond, and before that it was Spider-Man Kindred. Mm-hmm. And they do these every week is a Spider-Man title, and then they're getting towards the end. And I will, it, 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 Mark Bagley will come in and just finish the book. They've they've done it the last three uh, reboots in a row. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like okay, the book's falling apart. Bring in Mark Bagley to, to... literally save the day there. <laughs> and yeah, back in action. But um, I know we're kind of getting towards the end. I know we're just doing a little short, like almost like a mini podcast here. But Brandon, what's some of the things you got coming up for your new book? I know you said, you know, we got the new issue coming out, number seven, the little tie-in one there coming up for the next run and so on like that. I know you got some Comic-Cons coming up. What else do you want to kind of give a little shout-out there? Uh, let's see. I've got a comic show not uh, a week from tomorrow in Modesto. I'm going to be at the Powerhouse Show in Pleasanton next month. I think those are the next. Oh, and the Lodi Grape Festival on oh, yeah. May 6th. But that's always a good one. Is it? I've never, I, I think it's hilarious. I mean, I, I love grapes, so. Yeah, I've been to that one about three times. It's actually a very okay. impressive Comic-Con. Last time, for some reason, the air conditioning was out, so uh, it was kind of, oh, it was quite God. terrible. It was like 100 degrees inside and humid and terrible. Yeah, not, not made for yeah. comic books, let's say that. But um, No. But uh, generally, when everything's working there and so on like that, that one's, it's a really good-sized one. There's a lot of people there, you know. I mean, it still has the same thing that, you know, you'll probably be one of, you know, if you're lucky, five comic book artists. But uh, I I feel that's the inevitable. I really want to start a show because I almost don't think anybody else is going to do it. But I just really want to make a show where it's just comic book creators only. It's just no, no fan art, no action figures, 
No, like the old, the old ape, the old alternative press expo they used to have in the Bay Area. Yeah, just something like that. Because I feel like that's what's missing is because we just got to that point where, sadly enough, there's just there's two. Once again, as we said in the beginning of the episode, there's too many different you know genres of stuff all together and you know a lot of times the person who's in the action figures is probably not going to be in the comic books if they're into anime you never know they might not be once again in the comic books same with like wrestling and any of the other stuff that they kind of have in there it would be nice because it literally it could be you know one-eighth the size but if you had a comic-con that was literally like hey there's 20 comic book artists and writers and so on here Mm -hmm. and you sold it that way and you made sure people kind of knew because i think now the downfall is is everybody like the general public associates a comic-con with just anything and everything like a you know a a flea market of like comic books and anime type paraphernalia but um well heck at that level up show in las vegas they had the world super smash brothers tournament (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is the video games. I'm wrong, as much as I love video games, I've just watched is like every year those things take up more and more space at Comic Cons and so on like that. Yeah, they do. And I kind of hate to say it, just because you play video games it does not mean you might you might not read at all. So it's no, those things aren't this you know they don't convert over as easily as I think somebody thinks. You know, I mean, I know the guys no. selling the tickets. The more stuff you can jam pack in there, the more five dollar tickets you can sell for people coming through the door. And I get that, but. You know, yeah. for the creators, I feel like we, we need something that's a little bit more centered towards like, you know, you want a place where like everybody coming in is looking for comic books and is into that kind of stuff and yeah. so on. And so it's not like it's almost that kind of thing where I feel like we're almost at that point where we're like we're pitching selling a car to somebody who doesn't even have a license and they're never going to get right. a license. You know what I mean? So what are they yeah, going to do with a car? We're trying to, we're trying to sell a car to somebody, to somebody with a saddle. They, they've come for a horse. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's like, that's why I'm almost getting to the point. Like if I can't find a comic con, I'm almost thinking about like, maybe it's just, you just got to start, like just create a little comic con and just invite all the, yeah. all the indie comic book people that we know. And just kind of say like, Hey, we're, it's, we're going to keep it small, but we're going to sell it just as is like, this is what you yeah. get. If you're into comic books, come here. You know, that, that that's what we we're delivering—a pure Comic Con. We should just try to get permission to like show up in someone's parking lot and get a dozen or so guys together. And I mean, people pass, people see on the road and just stop and look. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I, I have even a parking lot in mind that might even be, you know, at least an experimental place and well, so on like go. that. Or the other one too is if the, you know, all you gotta do is the other place would be to find a comic book store that had a nice parking lot or something like that too. So then it would just tie in with the comic book store. And then I feel that's like a double yeah. whammy for everybody. And everybody already knows where a comic store is. So you're not sending them on like a goose chase to some new location. Yeah. During the pandemic, they started this little underground uh, comic convention thing that I, I attended one of them. And they would just find big parking lots, usually like churches or something. Mm-hmm. And people would back their cars into a parking space, open their trunks or their hatchbacks <laughs> and whatever, and have comics. And there was a space in between everybody. And the tables were way the heck out in front for people to look at product. Yeah. And it, it was fun. And I mean, I did it because, you know, I was trying to move. I was having crappy online sales during the lockdown. So I was trying to sell some comics. Yeah. 
Well, see, and, and that's kind of like I, I even like the idea of like the doing the parking lot style because once again, like that, you know, you know what's the best part about that is you don't have to really take anything out. You know, you just back up, open up your trunk, open up, yeah. you know, whatever you got, you know, put your tailgate down, and you're ready to go. You don't have to really drag everything in and set everything up. You know, I mean, you'll set some things. Yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Know. I mean, if you've got if you've got a pick of like a folding table, then that's great. But otherwise, just you have them in the trunk of the car or whatever. It's yeah, whatever, whatever you want to do. But um, but that you know what. That, that's something that I'm thinking about. If nobody else is going to do it, at some point, I feel like going to have to make the initiative on that one. But yeah, well, I'd show up. I'd show up to that. Yeah, as I said, like I, I'm just trying to think. It's like that'd be kind of fun just to find a place where it wouldn't cost you know too much to rent it out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Don't even have to charge a fee for people coming in. Just be like, hey, we're just you know do it like in a sense it would it'd feel like we're just doing like a pop up flea market of comic books. But, yeah, exactly. But that's all we need though. That, that's all we're that's all I'm asking for. Right. Right. I mean, it's not like we're selling anything that costs a fortune, so. Yeah. So, something to think about in the future. But, Brandon, I know I got to kind of take off. I know this is our short and sweet podcast, but that doesn't mean that, you know, coming up soon, we just have to jump on, do it some more, because I have a feeling we, you know, we could talk for hours on all kinds of good stuff here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but at least we got the little one in there. I felt like that kind of got the shoe in the door and everything like that. It's like, okay, now we're rolling, now we're going, and so on like that. Brandon, if anybody's looking for your book, what's the best places to send them to? Uh, Best place to send to right now, I've got an Indiegogo On Demand. You can just pop in there and type in the book's title, Malevolent Rising, and you can get them all there because I'm still doing fulfillment on that one. And uh, right now, since all the books are done, if you pick them up, they usually ship within about a week of the order. Awesome. And then you got a website or anything, too? Yeah, it's actually midnightcomics.net. Perfect. I'll put that for sure in the description, everything like that. Make that nice and easy to access. And then, yeah, you got to pick this book up. It's totally awesome. Six issues so far, correct? Seven just about on its way. And seven then, should be seven should be up probably up for order in the next two or three weeks. Sweet. Well, I know for sure uh, when we run into each other again at Comic Con, I'll definitely have to pick that up from you. Yeah. But um, till then, Brandon, you take care. And then, as I said, we'll just jump on this podcast a little bit later, and uh, we'll just continue where we left off in a sense. All right. Yeah, I appreciate it. No problem, dude.